Let's join together in prayer. Our good and our holy God, we thank you for a chance to worship in this place. We thank you for a chance to sing, and Lord, a chance to pray and to give and to greet one another. And Lord, we thank you for the hope and the strength and the correction that's found in your word. Lord, as we open the Bible together today, we pray that you lead us into your truth, that you transform us in your presence to the likeness of Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Son, our Savior. It's in his holy name that we pray, saying together, amen, amen. Please be seated, and as you're seated, I invite you to find a Bible and turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. Our text today is Genesis chapter 15. This is the last in our message series, What a Mess, God's Grace in the Real World. You'll notice in your worship guide that the category today uh, is messy worship. Now let me help you sort of characterize that in your own mind. I'm not simply talking about worship as it is when we come together and we sing and we give and we pray and respond. I have a broader sort of understanding of worship today, uh, which is meeting with God. Uh, my friend and professor from years ago, Argel Smith, defined worship as meeting with God. And worship leadership is prompting others uh, to meet with God. Uh, and our life as disciples of Jesus is, is about meeting with God. It's about being in relationship with God. It's about God's grace in our life and our response of trust and faith and, and all that takes place uh, as we meet with God, as we walk with God, as we live our life in this world as it is in a relationship with God, all the while hoping for the world that God is creating for us to share with Him. Uh, so that's what I'm talking about today, sort of messy life uh, and, and life with God, uh, worship with God. Today's text in Genesis chapter 15 is one of the sort of pinnacle text in the Old Testament, one of the pinnacle text in the Bible. It's a fantastic story. It's an amazing story. It's a story about Abram. It's a story about God. It's a story that is affecting us even this very day. So as you open your Bibles, let's begin reading together. After these things, okay, uh, now, when you read something like that, you have to pause and say, after what things? Well, the broader context is that God has called Abram to leave his home, to leave his people, and to go to a place that he would show him. He invited him into a relationship, and he made promises to him. He promised that he would be the father of a nation, that he would be a blessing to the world. Uh, and so you have that call story in the Bible. And then you have chapter after chapter of, of, of Abram kind of rambling through and going about. He has some successes. He has some failures. And there is this lingering question, will God keep his promise? Will God fulfill his promise to Abram? We are microwave people, and God is more of a crockpot style kind of person, you know. And so there's always this lingering question, will God be true to his promise? Will God be faithful to his promise? And so that's sort of the broader, the broader context. The immediate context is that Abram had just had an experience with two sort of area leaders. Uh, he had the leader, uh, the priest, the king of Salem named Melchizedek come to him and bless him. And Abram gave a tithe to Melchizedek. 
Now, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews makes a big, big deal about this and says that Jesus is a priest, an eternal priest in the order of Melchizedek. You might want to put a pin there. This can be something you do in your Bible study this week. Chase down some of those, some of those footnotes. And then Abram has an opportunity to enter into an alliance, if you will, with the king of Sodom. And Abram pushes back against this, and he says, I will not accept as much as a thread from you. I don't want to be beholden to you. So Abram's in this sort of messy situation where he's interacting with these, these earthly leaders, uh, and he's experiencing something of the blessedness and the grace of God in the midst. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not... Be afraid, Abram. This is the big command of the Bible, isn't it? It shows up again and again and again. From your name on the front all the way to the maps in the back. It just keeps coming up. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing that I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you've been given no, uh, me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside, and he said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, how should I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to him, and he cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years, and also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." And it came to pass, when the sun went down, and it was dark, that, behold, there appeared a smoking oven, a burning torch, that passed between those pieces. 
On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I have given this land. What a story. In some ways, it's sort of a grueling, dark, ugly story. In some ways, it's the most beautiful and imaginable. It's a story that is gritty and earthy and otherworldly all at the same time. It's a story about God, and it's a story about us, and it's a story about life with God in the world that is, and it's a story about God's good promise for the future. It's a story, if you will, about three basic things. And when it comes to life with God, these three things, we have to have them in the foundation of our building or our building will fall. Uh, The three things are grace and faith and work. This morning, for just a few minutes, I want to linger over those three, three big issues as they relate to this narrative in the book of Genesis. The first being grace. Grace means God acts first. Grace suggests that God is bigger and better than we are. Uh, Grace suggests that God's in charge. And that God is the one who sets things up and invites. God is the, he is the lead in all of these stories. He is the chief character. And in this story, the chief character, as interesting as Abram is, the chief character is God. This story is a story of God's graciousness. God appears again to Abram, and he says to Abram, I am. God is a God of of revelation. God is a God that shows himself. God is a God that makes himself known again and again and again. And we know the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus the Christ. But here is God speaking to Abram, saying, I am. I am. He says, I am your shield. Now that's a poetic, sort of pretty way of saying, I am your king. I am the one who is is in charge. I am the one who will be your leader. I am the one that you will bow to. Remember, Abram just had an opportunity to enter into a political alliance. And he said, I will not receive a thread that you're offering because I don't want to be bound in this way, in this relationship. After these things, the word of the Lord came. Abram. And here is God saying to Abram, don't be afraid. Have you ever done something good? Have you ever felt like you've done something that pleased God? And then on the other side of that, you just trembled. You're like, there was so much grace in that moment. There was so much grace to do what God called you to do. And then almost immediately, those second thoughts run into you. You almost have like this buyer's remorse. You're like, well, that was cool, but now what? Do you remember the story of the great prophet in the Old Testament where he stands up against the prophets of Baal? And then right after that, right after that, he gets word that Jezebel's mad. Do you remember this old story about Elijah? And he just trembles in fear, almost like he's dead. He's paralyzed with fear. After this moment of courage, the word of God comes and says, Don't be scared. I am your shield. When we properly honor and fear the Lord, all lesser fears are drowned in its vicinity. 
God says, I am your shield. One of the great challenges of New Testament Christianity was who is going to be the Lord of life? Caesar or Christ? Christ or Caesar? And our sisters and brothers, our mothers and fathers in the faith, they gave their life declaring, Jesus Christ is Lord. And here in the earliest days of our life of faith, here is Abram, the father of the faithful, and God saying to him, don't be frightened. I'm your shield. I am your king. But God, because he's God and he's great and also good, did not stop there. He says, I am your shield and. Don't you love it when God puts an and in there? He says, I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Now, why did God promise himself to Abram as a reward? Is it because God was egotistical? I, I've known guys uh, along the way who, who just think they're sort of God's gift, you know? And if you get to date said person, then that is your reward in life. You ever known those people? They're not good people generally. That's not what God's up to. We can't paint God with our brushes. God says, I am your exceeding great reward because what is there better for God to offer? God being God cannot offer you a cattle of a thousand hills and it trump God offering you his very own self, his person. He said, Abram, he said, let me tell you about the rewards in this life. Let me tell you about the reward to come. Let me tell you about the treasure. He said, let me lay out for you what that reward will be. I am your exceeding great reward. Is that enough for you? If you've tasted a morsel of grace from the table of the king, God himself is enough reward for you. I am your reward. In 1992, I was in high school. Some of you think, oh, what a child. Some of you think, what an old man. <laughs> Depends on what side of 92 you sit on, right? 1992, I was in high school, and there was this great, great event. The Olympics were held in, in 1992, uh, and there was there's something happened during the Olympics that year that became a, a visual aid, that became a sermon illustration for every youth pastor in America. The 25th anniversary, get that, the 25th anniversary of that occurred recently, uh, and there, this, this kind of came back out. But in the Olympics in 1992, there was a story of an English runner named Derek Redmond. You might remember this scene. Derek Redmond was running, uh, and, and, and as he was running, and he was in the pack, he was giving it all he got. His dream was to be an Olympian, and here he was in the Olympics. And Derek Redmond was coming around the track, and it looked like he got shot in the back of the leg. His leg just buckled. His hamstring blew. Some of you might remember the scene, not if you remember the scene. His hamstring blew, and he just very painfully kept going. He wasn't going to bow out of the race. Tears in his eyes, pain in his body. He wasn't going to quit. From the stands came a dorky-looking father with a hat on, with a T-shirt on, with a fanny pack on. It's a 1992. 
They're back again. Have you heard about that? I've seen fanny packs. So here's this, this kind of dorky daddy running on, the, on the, the field. Nobody really knows what's going on. Security guards come up to the dad, and they try to wave him off, and he pushes them aside. He runs up, and he finds the runner. And he comes up alongside the runner. And the only way that this dorky dad could catch this Olympic athlete is because the Olympic athlete had blown out his hamstring. It was in excruciating pain. And he runs up beside this Olympic athlete, and he puts his arms around his body. And the athlete looks over at the man in the nerdy hat, and he just drops his head onto his shoulders, and he weeps. And the man throws his arm around him. It's his father. And he starts running with his son, this Olympic athlete specimen of health with a blown-out leg, he starts running with his son. And the security guards are coming at him, and he's angrily waving them off. And you can see in the video that's kept, you go away, this is my son, this is our time, and he's finishing this race. I'm going to make sure he finishes this race. And he carries him over the line. He completed the course. So often in the New Testament, the writers, the writer of Hebrews, Paul, other, they write about our life of faith as, as a race, as a, as a journey race, uh, as a competition. And at the end of it, there's going to be a crown. Run, Paul says, as to receive the prize. Keep your eyes on, on the pioneer. Keep your eyes on the prize. Foc focus your eyes on the, on the prize. I have a hunch as we go through life and as we come to the end of our days, I have a hunch that as we meet God face to face, I have a hunch as all of this happens, what we will, what we will discover is that our prize, our prize carried us over the line that we ran to the best of our ability and all the way his grace was upholding, all the way his grace was pulling, all the way his grace was enabling. I have this notion that as we come to the end and we celebrate with God and the angels and, and the church triumphant, the great victory of the gospel, the prize will be God himself. I have that touch and that, and that hunch because it saturates Scripture, this promise that I am your reward. I'm your reward. The beginning, it's grace. In the middle, it's grace. At the end, it's grace. Our shield, our reward. God breaks this down even further for Abram. He says, I, I am the God who brought you out. God's often calling us to look back and, 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 and see that he is the one who brought us out of our slavery, or he's the one who brought us out of Ur, or he is the one who brought us out of our sin. God called him to look back. God called him to look in the future. He says, no, you will be the father of a people. He said, this land and these people, they will be yours. They will come through you. He calls him to look at his future. He takes him outside. I love this scene. He says, hey, I, I want to show you this. I don't want you to miss this. Come out, out here. Maybe God and Abram were talking at the kitchen table. I don't know where they were talking. But he took him outside, and he said, look up. Look up at the stars. 
There was a day where people used to count the light bulbs that were in those little things right there. Cecil, how many light bulbs were there? He doesn't remember. He counted them, though. I promise you he did. He counted them last Thursday. Uh, he says, look up there. Can you count that? He says, that's, that's your future. That's our future. That's what, that's what will happen. That's what I've promised for you. And then Abram is like, how do I know you'll pull this off? How do I know you'll keep this great promise, God? Then things got messy. He said, I want you to bring me, and he, he gave off. A, a, it's kind of like people go in the restaurant and just said, I'll have this, and just point at the menu. God says, I want you to bring me this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, starting with the bulls, going down to the pigeons, big to little. He said, I want you to bring all these animals to me. Okay. And so Abram brings to God that which is costly. This is an act of, of response, and this is an act of worship. He brings, he brings the big to the little, something of everything that he's got. He brings that before God. And those animals are hewn in two, everything but the birds. Why? Because they're little bitty. Hewn in two, place one side and the other. And in the, in the darkness of night, in the darkness of night, a fire pot, a torch, walks through the middle of these hewn asunder animals. Some suggest that this was a, a Hurrian treaty, you know, a land-grant treaty. We know from the text that this is a, a mark of a covenant, a covenant that had been cut. This was God saying, let me be divided if I fail to keep my promise to you. He was saying, I'm walking through the middle of these hewn animals. As they are divided, can I be divided? No, I cannot be divided. But, but let me be divided if I'm not faithful to my promise. Abraham needed a picture, and God gave him one. And it was messy, and it was powerful. He could smell it. He could taste it. He could feel it. And in the midst of that community, God was saying, look here, Abram, look here. This can't possibly happen to me. It's absurd to think that I would not fulfill this great promise that I have made to make of you a people. This is my purpose and this is my plan. This is my, this is my commitment. This is my life. When Jesus hung on the cross and cried, it is finished, he was saying to all, he was saying for all ages and all times, this covenant is complete. And this is grace that God has offered life, that he's demonstrated out of the messiness of human frailty, that he can work the miracles of wholeness and transformation. Grace, grace, grace at the beginning, grace in the middle, and grace at the end. That's just one of the things today, though. It's the lead punch, but there are following ones and the response to grace in Scripture is the invitation to faith. How about verse 6? And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. This is one of the most important sentences ever written down. We know its impact in the, 
in the New Testament. We know what Paul did with this text of Scripture. We know what Martin Luther did with this text of Scripture, calling us to a life with God based on our trust of His promise. Walter Brueggemann, the Old Testament scholar, said this, Paul has well understood the claim of this text. The future of God's goodness is open to those who trust themselves to that future, seeking neither to hold on to the present nor to conjure an alternative future of their own. God has come to us and he has offered us life in his son. He's called us to a place of surrender, of commitment, of trust. What keeps us from new life in Him? What keeps us from, from putting our hands of trust into His strong hand of grace, a hand that will never let us go? What keeps us from that? Our inability to let go of the life that we have on our own terms or our unwillingness to say that we can't be God on our own conjuring up a future from scratch. To come to God and trust in faith, you have to confess that God is God and you're not. And that sounds a lot easier than it is in practice. But God has called all of us rich, poor, in-between, butchers, bakers, candlestick makers, to live our life in reference to Him. And He comes first with grace, wanting to give us a gift. And the way we receive that is to come to Him offering two empty hands. You don't come to God making deals. You don't come to God uh, with something to offer. You come to God with empty hands to be filled by His mercy. And that's so hard for so many of us. When I was a kid, my mom and dad we started talking to me about my commitment to Christ and baptism. And, and, uh, and like good parents, they, they walked through that with me. And then they said, well, we want you to go talk to Dr. Randall. Dr. Randall was our pastor, a great old guy, seminary professor, preacher, great old storyteller, just a big-hearted man. Been the pastor at First Baptist Tuscaloosa for a long time. He baptized Debbie Perry and me. Great, great, wonderful humble man of God. Uh, and I, I remember seeing uh, Dr. Randall that morning, and, and, and he said, Matt, he said, let me give you a gift. And he, he reached down in his pocket, and he pulled out a dime. That was not impressive even in the 80s. <laughs> but he said, I want to give you, he was an old guy, you know, he, had, he hadn't worked the inflation calculator yet. <laughs> he pulled out a dime, and he said, Here, here's a dime. He said, I want you to have it. So I, I took it, and he said, when did this gift become yours? I said, well, Dr. Randall, it was when you gave it to me. He said, give me that dime back. Let's try this again. He said, Matt, here is a gift for you. I want you to have it. And I received that dime from him. He said, now, Matt, tell me, when did that gift become personal, real? When did it become yours? He said, Doctor, he, he, he said, Matt, I said, Dr. Randall, when, when I took it. He said, exactly right. He said, all your life, God has been giving you gifts. He said, before you were born... God gave you a gift. He said, he said, in Christ, God gave the ultimate gift. And then all along the way, God's been working in your life. People telling the story and people sharing life with you. And, and, and he said, all along your, your, your life, every breath of your life has been touched by the grace of God. 
He said, now, Matt, you've come to a place in your life where you understand that, where you get that. And he said, you have to trust him, and you have to give him your whole life, and you have to follow him. He said, are you ready to do that? I said, I am ready to do that. Grace. Faith. God said, I'll be your shield. I'll be your great reward. How will we know, God? Here's just how you'll know. What will you do, Abram? What will you do? Abram believed God. Have you? Have you? Grace. Faith. Here's a third one, and we'll do this really quickly. A life of trust and a life of faith means that we're committed to a life of work with God. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. Nothing to brag about there. Unto good works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Faith opens our life up to the work of God that has been coming at us in wave after wave. And a relationship, a trusting relationship with God results in a life of service and love in the world that it is. One of the strangest scenes in this story, one of the weirdest scenes in all of the Bible, is when Abram brought these animals to God, and God divided them, laid them apart. Later, God would manifest his presence as fire, kind of like Pentecost, you know, fire. A God of covenant and fire and miracle. When those carcasses were laid out, vultures started to swoop down on them. Did you read that in the story? Buzzards showed up. And it said that Abram shooed them away. It says the buzzard showed up. And Abram shooed them away. Again and again, they would show up. And Abram would shoo them away. And I guess they kept coming until the fire came down the middle and frightened them to death. But until then, the buzzard showed up. And it was Abram's job. Get it? Abram's job. Now, if I'm Abram, I might have another conversation with God. God, if you can accomplish manifesting your presence as fire, couldn't you have told the buzzers to take the afternoon off? I mean, I don't think it's a throwaway line in Scripture. I think there's a lesson here for us. God did not answer him about the buzzards. God answered him about a lot of things, but he allowed the buzzards in this story to be a mystery. And some of us are still a little tripped out because the buzzards are a mystery. Our God of covenant and our God of promise and our God who brought us out and who will take us in, our God who is gracious in the middle passage of life will not shoo away our buzzards. The pipe still break, the paint still flakes, life still happens, there's still mess, and God calls us as people of faith to gear up and shoo the buzzards away. 
And I think when we allow them to be part of the story in the world that is, then, then we open ourselves up to an increasing dimension of joy and toughness. And if we're going to make it in this world, and if we're going to be effective in this world, and if we're going to serve God in the world that is as we're heading toward the world that is coming, then we have to be people of joy and grit, toughness and tenderness, to recognize that buzzards come, and when we do, we can mope about it, or we can shoo them away. God, we love you. And we thank you for loving us. And we thank you on this day that we've had a chance to read this great story again. Lord, we're grateful that you're a God of grace, that you have come for us, that you've held nothing back to give us life, that you loved us while we were yet sinners. We thank you for all those rich truths of Scripture that just keep feeding people year after year, day after day, thousands of years past their being written on the page. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that you're a God that reveals yourself to us. We thank you that you are our shield and our exceeding great reward. Lord, as we sing this song today, I pray that there would be people uh, who would come to the place in their journey that they would say, this is it. This gift so freely offered, I receive by trust and faith. In response, I give my life. Lord, give us joy and tenacity as we face the challenges of life. Give us strength to do the work you've called us to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Friends, let's stand and let's sing together our hymn of commitment. Come and lead us.